Thank you to our music team. Appreciate you guys serving us. We just sang, O Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose, and let my song forever be my only boast is you. And I ask you, before we approach a passage that I've been praying will change not only my life, but the life of this church body, I ask you, did you mean it? Are you ready to do things that you are not comfortable doing? To maybe sell everything you have at the age of 60 and go to the mission field? Do you mean it? Let me ask you to turn with me to Mark chapter 2 this morning. As we continue our study in the gospel according to Mark, last week we began in chapter 2, and this week we'll be in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, thinking about the reality that only sinners can follow Jesus. As the popularity of Jesus grew, so did the opposition to Jesus, opposition that was met most especially by the religious leaders of the day. And now, as we saw last week, the scribes opposed Jesus, questioned him in their minds and in their hearts. Now we see those scribes, this time more specifically the scribes of the Pharisees, uh, begin to question Jesus now out loud. And the opposition continues to grow, and it will culminate in chapter 3, where they determine that it's time for them to plot to kill Jesus. He's causing too much trouble. And so this morning we read Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, as we see that continued opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow along with me as I read. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray together. Lord, as we approach your word now, we pray that you would grant us the, the right humility that we need to receive the food of your word and also an eager anticipation of what you will do in the power of your spirit and your word. We understand that this is not just a book. This is your very word. We understand that as we approach the Bible, you speak from your very throne to us. And therefore, we understand that when this happens, Lord, there's no possible way, if we are humble, if we are teachable, that we won't be changed by it. We're not quite sure what individual ways in which you want to change each one of us, but we are sure we want you to. We have just sung to you, Lord. Use our lives in any way you choose. And so we pray, O God, that you would meet that prayer that we have sung. 
We pray that you would use this passage in our hearts to teach us about your ministry, Lord Jesus Christ, and how we are to embody that very same ministry. Help us to know the the ways in which we are to follow you. We certainly do not want to compromise in any way. We certainly want to pursue holiness and righteousness. We certainly want to live a life that's marked by loving obedience to you. But we pray, O God, that you would help us not to erect walls between ourselves and sinners. That we would not see ourselves as a special group of people and see the world as a scornful group of people. We pray most especially, Lord, that you would allow us not to be the scribes of the Pharisees. And yet even as we think about that reality, Lord, I, I have to confess I think if we're honest, we all have to confess that when we take a, a good long look at our own motives, our own actions, far too often we see a life that mirrors the scribes instead of a life that mirrors you. And so we confess this to you, and we ask you to help us to change, and we trust that you will do that very thing. We know that that change will happen by your word and by your spirit. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would take up your sword now. Use it on us as a body. We pray, O God, that we would not see ourselves as living in a castle with a moat and a drawbridge that we we draw up every time we gather together so that none of the bad people can come in, but that we would see ourselves more like arrows in your quiver that you shoot out into enemy territory so that your light would shine, so that disciples would be made, so that the saving nature of the Lord Jesus Christ would be crystal clear, not just in his words, but in our lives and how our lives have been affected by his words. For that, we will need your help. So we throw ourselves at your mercies, but we do so with great confidence, knowing that you give good gifts to your children. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so together we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. William Carey is known today as the father of modern missions. He lived between the years of 1761 and 1834. And he spent 41 years in India without furlough. Hence, the father of modern missions. Among his many accomplishments were, first of all, baptizing his first convert after seven years of faithful ministry. And in fact, it's held that at the end of his life, after he died, despite all of his work and all of his efforts, his missionary society, which he founded, could only count upwards of 700 converts total in a nation of millions. Yet for 41 years, he put his hand to the plow, never went home, never stopped. In addition to taking seven years to baptize his first convert, he also was a part of translating the Bible, the entire Bible, into every major language in the nation of India. Bangladesh was one of his uh, major focuses. 
He also was involved in the abolition of infanticide, of a practice of, called widow burning. I can't remember. I think it's Sita. When a husband would die, they would burn the body as an offering to their gods. But they would also force the widow to get on the pyre and she would be burned alive to, so that she would remain with her husband in the afterlife. In addition to abolishing infanticide and widow burning, he also was involved in abolishing assisted suicide as well. He, inspired by his efforts of faithfulness, of simply putting his hand to the plow and never looking back, many other missionaries, including legends like Adoniram Judson and Hudson Taylor, David Livingston, many, many other missionaries, hence the nickname, the father of modern missions. You can imagine that William Carey experienced significant opposition throughout his ministry, but perhaps his most heartbreaking opposition came before he ever even got started and came not from the world, but from the church. At a meeting of local pastors in 1787, Carey, who was a newly ordained minister, stood up in this meeting to argue for the value of overseas missions as he saw the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ to go and make disciples, Carey stood up and thought that they should be doing more in order to fulfill that mission. And before he could finish what he was saying, an older minister interrupted him and said these now infamous words, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. You can only imagine those words ringing in the ears of William Carey the entire time he was in India, continuing to preach the gospel, continuing to do the work of the Lord, the very work that the Lord called him to do in the first place. And so I say that William Carey's probably most heartbreaking opposition came not from the world, but came from inside the church. Reflected in those two men's attitudes, William Carey's and the one who told him to sit down and that if God wanted the heathen to be converted, he would simply do it himself without the actions of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Reflected in those two attitudes and those two actions are, I think, the two ways in which we can see Christianity. One, of course, is biblical. The other, of course, is entirely unbiblical and inherently wicked. The first way we can see Christianity reflected in that old minister's infamous words is to see Christianity as a posture or a religion, if you would like to call it that, of us versus them. Us versus them. We're the good guys. The world is the bad guys. The second, and I think right biblical way in which you can see Christianity is not us versus them, but us for them. William Carey embodied that second way, us for them. And yet the church of his day embodied that first way, us versus them. Those who seek to establish their own righteousness will always see Christianity as us versus them. 
Whereas those who treasure the grace of God in Jesus Christ will see Christianity for what it really is and will heed the Lord's call to make disciples. They will not see Christianity as us versus them, but as us for them. And this is reflective in the very actions of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What happens when people get comfortable in their religious practice of Christianity? They begin to think of Christianity as a sort of in-crowd, a special chosen selected group of people that are God's special people contrasted to the unspecial people that will one day burn in hell. And if we are to preserve our special status before God, the us versus them mentality says, then what we have to do is make sure that we don't let those people in here and we don't let these people in here out there. And so they build walls so that the sinners don't come. And they don't, of course, build friendships with sinners because, well, we know how osmosis works. You hang around a sinner too long, you might start absorbing some of their sin. But we see something completely contrary in the attitudes and actions of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we are certainly not the Lord Jesus Christ, while we are certainly able to be tempted we must follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If the world will change, then Christians know and Christians alone know that change must first be an internal heart change before it is ever a political change or an agenda change. It must be as the result of regeneration. The sinner must be born again. And while we're thinking about the world in such a big category, let's, let's narrow it down a little farther. If your family will change, they will only change because they will be born again through faith in Jesus Christ. If your neighbor will change, They will only change through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If the hemp farmers and the marijuana farmers that keep invading our precious territory, if they will ever change, they will only change by regeneration through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they will hear the message, they will only hear the message because Christians see themselves as living not an us versus them type of life, but an us for them type of life. You will perhaps see and notice, even as I preach this passage, that this has been quite humbling and convicting for me personally. It's fun to engage the word of God with a with a heart that you realize still needs to be changed. My prayer even this morning was that 
this particular passage would be a sort of a landmark in the life of Applegate Community Church. Whether you remember who preached it or not, I really don't care. But I hope 50 years, 100 years from now, when we think about new members' classes and we think about giving the history of Applegate Community Church, I hope that at least a paragraph of that history will say, our church was profoundly affected by the way that Jesus treated sinners. And in the light of Jesus' treatment of sinners, we decided that we would begin not to hide from sinners, but to pursue sinners on a mission of redemption. Listen to some of the ways in which the Bible describes the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have Ezekiel chapter 34, for instance, verses 11 and 12 say, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Luke chapter 15, verses four to seven. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or the simple words of Jesus in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Precious words that display the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't they? Display the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very gracious nature of the heart of Jesus Christ to pursue those who are lost and to gather them together and to bring them in. And so I ask you, how could anyone be opposed to such a ministry? But that is exactly what we see reflected in the scribes of the Pharisees in our passage this morning. How could anyone be opposed to that type of ministry? Only if they are living in self-righteousness. When man attempts to build his own religion, which is what self-righteousness is, it just has a Christian sticker placed over it. When man attempts to build his own religion, he erects walls to keep all the bad people out. But when God extends his grace, he goes to the sinner and he calls him to follow me. This is the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I submit to you on the authority of the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, this is the ministry of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We see this idea, we see this ministry displayed here for us in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, and I want us to, to focus particularly as we think about it on the grace of Jesus Christ, a grace that we will see displayed, a grace that we will see despised, and a grace that we will see declared. In other words, first Jesus demonstrates it, he shows that grace And then as the self-righteous hypocrites see that grace, they're appalled by it. They can't believe that he would do such a thing with such a people. And then, so that no one missed his point, Jesus directly stated the very fact that just as the sick, just as the, the well have no need of physician, he has come not to call the righteous to himself, but to call the sinners to himself. And so first of all, we have in verses 13 to 15, the grace of Jesus displayed. The grace of Jesus displayed. We see it displayed in two separate acts. First of all, the act of calling Levi the tax collector, who in Matthew's gospel is named Matthew because he wrote it and he can call himself whatever he wants to. It was not uncommon for people to have multiple names. You think of Saul and Paul. And so Levi here is Matthew, but Mark just is concerned in this passage to call him Levi. So we see the grace displayed toward that particular individual, and then we see the grace displayed toward his, his fellowship, his dining with tax collectors and sinners. First of all, verses 13 and 14, grace displayed to Levi. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Jesus continues on with his ministry. His popularity is still sky high. His mission is still to go and teach. He's left Capernaum. He's gone beside the sea. Everyone's following him. And he continues to do the very same thing that he was intending to do, to teach them. What does he teach them? He teaches them about the gospel of God. He teaches them, Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. That the time was at hand, the kingdom of God, the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God was at hand, they should repent of their sins and believe the gospel of God. This continues to be the main message of Jesus' teaching ministry, and the people can't get enough. They may not respond the right way, but they're interested deeply, and so he continues to teach them. But then, as Mark looks at the whole crowd, he zooms in on one particular person. A person who was no doubt a lonely man sitting in a tax booth. Perhaps there were others working the pole, working the the tax booth at that point. But the reality is that the tax collectors lived a terribly lonely and terribly rejected life. Verse 14 says, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. You probably, if you've been around the Bible for a while, you know that when you read about the tax collectors, they're the bad guys. They're the outcasts. They're the social rejects. Well, it was worse than that, really. You'll notice if you look down to verse 16 and you see the despise of the scribes and Pharisees, tax collectors were so bad that they even had their own category in addition to sinners. Sinners and also tax collectors. They were despised greatly. They were counted with the thieves and the murderers. 
They were a disgrace to their family, disowned certainly by their families. They could never go home because they would be a complete embarrassment to their families. And if they did go into the homes of their families, well, then any home they, the tax collector entered was immediately considered to be unclean. So you can see why no one would let a tax collector into their house. They didn't want their home to be considered unclean. They were so bad that it was uh, widely held. In fact, it was written in Jewish law that you were allowed to lie to tax collectors and face no penalties whatsoever. Tax collectors were not viewed as human beings. They were viewed as the man. They couldn't serve as witnesses in court. They were banned from going into the synagogues. They were completely living outside of their own people. They worked for the nation, uh, for the, the, the empire of Rome, and they worked for local governors. And so Levi here is in the particular area of Capernaum, probably here taxing, at least amongst other things, taxing whatever the fishermen would catch. That was one of the, the things that Rome would tax, and they would farm that out. It was called tax farming. They would farm it out to the local authorities who would then take bids from local residents. The local residents would say something like, to put it in modern day terms, if you give me this area for taxation, I'll collect for you $1 million this year. And so they would take the highest bid. And some, there are conflicting historical reports. Some say they had to pay that $1 million up front. Others say they had to pay it at the end of the year. I wasn't alive back then, so I don't know what happened. But either way, the tax collector had to pay what he said he would collect. And once that amount of money, $1 million for instance, once that amount of money was collected, everything in addition to that went straight into the pocket of the tax collector. So you could see there was major incentive to get more out of the people than Rome itself even required. They were notorious for never posting the tax regulations at their booth because the less people know, the more you can take advantage of them. And so they were, they were hated because they were crooks. They were swindlers. They cheated people out of their money. And you can imagine if that was the lifestyle that you lived, you probably faced some opposition, so you needed to have a certain mentality. You needed to be an enforcer of sorts. After all, if you go to collect taxes from a guy who then beats you up, you're not, very, you're not a very good tax collector, are you? Word gets around, you got beat up, and everybody just decides, hey, let's just keep beating them up instead of paying our taxes. In addition to not only their, their, being, their needing to be tough, they had the Pax Romana behind them, the Peace of Rome, which was an overall edict for the Roman Empire, which, which said, if you cause trouble in the Roman Empire, we will come and deal with you and squash the trouble and make you an example so that others will learn you don't mess with the peace of Rome. And this is what crucifixion most represented. You don't mess with Rome. Keep the peace or else. So you can imagine these people were terribly, terribly hated. But as Mark pans away from the great crowds following Jesus, as he pans away from the popularity of Jesus, the camera focuses in on one man. One man who, who would have been the negative talk of town. One man who is deeply hated, 
deeply despised. And yet Jesus, when he sees him sitting there, locks eyes with the man. And rather than telling him where he can stick it, says to him, follow me. Mark isn't concerned to tell us how the crowd responded. Mark isn't concerned to tell us about even how the other disciples responded. But when we know enough about tax collectors, we can know that this was a controversial move. You don't talk to tax collectors, let alone call them to be one of your disciples. You know, Jesus treated this tax collector the very same way he treated the fisherman back in chapter 1. They were in the middle of their job. Jesus said to them, follow me. And how did this tax collector respond? He rose and followed him. Mark, or Luke rather, adds the additional, what Mark implies, that he left everything and followed Jesus. And we see then in the action of Matthew, of Levi, of the tax collector here, we see the model for Christian discipleship. When Jesus calls, you follow immediately. No turning back. Not only do you follow when Jesus calls, but you leave everything else behind. Fishermen, if they left their occupation, they could always return back to it, but not so with tax collectors. If they left their occupation, they could never return. Matthew would have been one of the, Levi, Matthew would have been one of the richest people in Capernaum, just by the very nature of him being a tax collector. And yet he saw that that stream of revenue was not worth comparing to Jesus Christ. Isn't this Christianity? Haven't we decided the very same thing? That nothing, money, friends, family, status, reputation, goals, dreams, aspirations, nothing is more valuable than following the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why I ask you, are you sure that you are ready to let the Lord do whatever he wills with your life? Because he just might call you to leave everything you've ever known. And so the grace of Jesus is on display then in calling this man. And the grace of Jesus is on display even in the way in which the man responded. He left and he followed the Lord Jesus Christ. The next scene then is in verse 15 and it moves to a house. Luke tells us that it was Levi's or Matthew's house that he was so excited about being called as a disciple of Jesus Christ that he threw a party for his friends and when you're a tax collector and you invite your friends to your house guess who comes guess who your friends are tax collectors and sinners you're not friends with the scribes of the Pharisees though somehow they weasel their way in you're not friends with the people who are highly looked upon in society. You're not friends with the people who have a good reputation. You're friends with the people who have a bad reputation because you yourself have a bad reputation. And so verse 15 says, and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. 
Notice twice the word many. Many tax collectors and sinners were gathered all around the table. But notice where Mark puts the emphasis and the focus. Not on the table, but on Jesus. Because anytime Jesus is around, he is the focus. And notice... Mark emphasizes for us, too, that amongst the crowds of people that were following Jesus, many of them made up the category of tax collector and sinner. Why do you think that would be the case? Because the people whom society says, you're bad, know that they're bad, don't they? They might reject the label, Or in their self-defensive sort of prideful way, they might accept the label and, and begin to own it and wear it as a badge of pride. But in the deep recesses of their heart, they know it's not a good thing. Why were many tax collectors and sinners following Jesus? Because they were not interested in establishing their own self-righteousness. They knew they were not righteous. And yet as they heard those beautiful words flow out of the most righteous mouth to ever live, the Lord Jesus Christ, they knew there's something about him that's different. Something about him is attractive. I don't want anything that these religious scribes and Pharisees are selling, but he's got something. I don't know what it is yet. I'm still following. I'm still figuring it out, but he's got something different about him. And he sits then with a group of people that if you were to have in your home would be, would earn your home the label of unclean, not to mention if you were sitting down and eating a meal with them, reclining as they did in those days, they would lay down at the table and they would rest their arm or the rest of their bodies on their left arm and sort of lean sideways so that you could fit more people around the table. And they would eat with their right hand and they would sit and they would, or they would lay and they would talk and it was a big deal. But you didn't do that with tax collectors and sinners. All the good church folk know you don't do that. Yet that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He appealed to them because there was something different about them. And he did not care what the leaders said about him. Jesus wasn't going to live in the fear of man. I don't know what my neighbors would think if I had so-and-so over for a meal. I don't know what the church would think if I brought so-and-so into a service. He wasn't concerned because Jesus was more concerned for souls than he was about what people thought about him. More concerned for souls than his very own status. Aren't you so thankful that this same Lord Jesus Christ and this very same grace to go to people that no one else wants to go to, aren't you so grateful that this very same grace is active today? I don't know your situation of what you were saved out of. I know some of you. Perhaps you were saved at a young age and in a good home. And that's equally miraculous as the person that was saved not in a good home and out of a terribly difficult and disastrous lifestyle. 
But regardless of whatever the situation was, it's this very same grace that still today reaches down for the sinner where the sinner is. Do you find it do you find it difficult as you think about the Christian life and as you think about your responsibility to be an evangelist? Do you find it difficult to make relationships with people that are labeled sinners? Do you find it difficult to ask them to come over to your house for a meal? Would you invite, for instance, the, I don't know, local leader of Planned Parenthood over for some barbecue? This is exactly what Jesus was doing. The type of person that makes your blood boil and your skin crawl. You see, while I think we like to think of ourselves as being more like Jesus in this passage, I think, if we're honest, we're usually more like the scribes of the Pharisees. Yet this is exactly what the grace of God does. It doesn't demand that the sinner clean himself or herself up in order to get to Jesus. But Jesus goes to the sinner and does for the sinner what the sinner cannot do. Calls him or her, cleanses him or her, and envelops them in his love forever. This is exactly what Paul reminded the Corinthians of. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, he told them, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we say, yeah, that's right. And it is right. But then listen to what Paul says. And such were some of you. But you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, while the self-righteous incessantly try to build walls and, and keep the sinners out, Jesus tears those walls down. He smashes right through them and he goes straight to the sinner, just like he did when he came to you. And he said to you, sinner, come, you're mine. Follow me. And you responded in the only way you can when Jesus calls you in this way. You said, yes, Lord, I'm yours. Anything you want, Lord. And so then we see the grace of Jesus displayed. And then secondly, we see the grace of Jesus despised in verse 16. Verse 16 says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Somehow the scribes of the Pharisees were gathered around. Perhaps they were in the house. Perhaps they were onlookers from outside of the house. Maybe they saw a great group of people uh, gathered around a house and they decided to check out what was going on. And and here he is again, that rabble rouser Jesus 
causing trouble for us religious leaders. And, and I can't believe what he's doing this time. He's actually sitting down and eating a meal with those dirty people. The tax collectors and the sinners. How dare he? In our town? Luke tells us that they grumbled when they said this. This was not a question of just sheer confusion. This was a question of total disdain. They could not believe the nerve of this man to eat with such a people like that. It's one thing to talk to such a people like that, but then to sit down and eat a meal with them? It was unthinkable. We've been introduced already to the scribes. Now the scribes of the Pharisees come into play. The Pharisees, you know, if you've been around the Bible for a while, the Pharisees were the religious elite. They were the ones who considered themselves separated, even from the, just the normal, average, everyday worshiper in Israel. They were the ones who were more righteous than anyone else. They were so righteous, in fact, that they had a collection of over 630 commandments because the 10 that God had given was not enough. And so they added many more to it because they wanted to make sure that if they layered on the commandments, then they wouldn't even get close to breaking the law of God. And yet the mistake they made was the mistake that self-righteous mankind continues to make. You cannot put rules on your life in order to keep you from sin. Because the problem is not outside of you. The problem is inside of you. You must be born again in order to truly have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, that was their identity. That was their job. And these particular Pharisees were scribes. They were scrupulous in the law. They were the ones who were required to copy down the law. They were the ones who knew the law in and out. And they knew, based on their own law, not God's law, but on their own law, that you don't do what Jesus is doing. And so you can see how their man-made religion has mingled into the grace of God. And they think that they're in the grace of God. They think themselves to be better than the tax collectors and the Pharisees. And now that Jesus, the only righteous person to have ever lived, now that he is displaying the true grace of God and the, the very reality that the holiness of God is not compromised when it comes in contact with sin, but in fact, sin is eradicated when it comes in contact with the holiness of God. But they saw themselves as needing to make sure that they didn't mix with the world. Even the religious people who weren't as religious as they were. They saw and they thought that if they were to sort of cohabitate and co-mingle with the world, even eat the world's food, they had strict requirements on what they would eat. They would only eat at the house of other Pharisees. Because those Pharisees tithed the food the right way and prepared it the right way. And they couldn't be sure if they ate at someone else's house if they had done the right thing. And so if they ate certain food that wasn't prepared the right way, they might sin in some way. The whole thing is completely ridiculous. And yet how often, how often do Christians live this very same mentality? We can't be friends with that person. We don't want to be worldly after all. 
we just want our own little bubble here. It's clean. It's nice. We like it. Everybody's just like us. If we start letting in those troublemakers, then it's going to mess up what we've got going here. And we really like our kingdom. But all that is is an attempt to build our own kingdom versus watching God build his kingdom with a whole bunch of different people from all kinds of different backgrounds who have usually only one thing in common, love for Jesus Christ. But the Pharisees didn't get that. The scribes certainly did not get that. They didn't understand that they, while they looked down on sinners, Jesus was looking for sinners. The goal of the Pharisees' life was to maintain the purity which they loved so much. But the goal of Jesus' life was to make disciples whom he loved so much. We know that Jesus did maintain his purity. He's the only one to have ever lived without sin. So his purity was certainly important to him. The fact that he did not sin was certainly a priority in his life. But it wasn't the most important thing to him. Jesus demonstrates for us that we must be more concerned with lost souls than we are with maintaining our own sense of purity. Now, of course, there's a way to to come at passages like this and get it completely wrong. It's the the Christian rock band that decides they're going to play in the bar. And in order to, which, which I will tell you, that is not wrong in any way. But in order to mingle with the crowd and, and sort of get an in, they take shots with everyone else. And they want people to see that Christians are just like everybody else too, so they get a little bit drunk. You laugh, but I've seen it happen. I think sometimes we are far more concerned with preserving our own sense of purity. We're far more scared that we're going to sin than we are concerned with the reality that Jesus came to save souls. And he's put us on a mission to do that very thing. Did you know that you don't have to sin? We need to be wise. There are areas that tempt us in particular ways that we need to avoid. And there are certain things such as sexual immorality that are inherently sinful and should be avoided. There are certain places you should and should not go. We know that. But just because a sinner is there and perhaps even engaging in sinful activity doesn't mean you have to do it also. When I was a youth pastor, we used to go to camp every summer and every winter as well. And, and of course, it was, it was appropriate for this to happen. But of course, every summer, there was posted and sort of came out from the leadership of the camp or perhaps even the camp itself, some various rules for practicing modesty while at camp. Good and appropriate. But of course, who did the rules always focus on? The girls. Should a girl dress modestly? Of course she should. But one of the things that I was always careful to do was to remind the guys, hey, listen, even if a lady chooses to not dress modestly, it's your fault if you look at her. It's not her fault. It's your fault. And yet I have to wonder how many young girls grow up in youth groups 
and all they ever hear is it's their fault if someone looks at them. Again, modesty is important. It's biblical, it's right. But each person is responsible for their own sin. The Pharisees did not understand that. And so all they did was construct walls around themselves to make sure that they weren't sinning. But the reality is they had nothing to offer the world. But what does Jesus say to his disciples? Matthew 5, 14 to 16, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Now, I'm not saying the Pharisees had a light, but go with me here. It seems that the Pharisees were deathly afraid that a sinner was going to come, out, come along and blow out the light of their lamp. So they kept sinners at a distance. Don't get too close to my lamp. I don't need you blowing this thing out and ruining it for me. But Jesus says that his people are the light of the world. And he says that's something that cannot be hidden. Therefore, we can easily comprehend that his people are not to run from the world, but engage with the world. What was it that was so appealing about Jesus versus the Pharisees? The Pharisees of Jesus' day were, were looked on as, as the good guys. The guys everybody really spiritually aspired to be like. Why weren't they the attraction of the tax collectors and the sinners? Because self-righteousness never offers anything appealing. All self-righteousness ever offers is a bunch of rules that weigh you down and wear you out. But the reality of the grace of Jesus Christ is that it's so compelling there's just something about the goodness of Jesus. And you notice, Jesus didn't stick one of his disciples at the door and say, have you sinned recently? Get out of here then. He's in the middle of eating with tax collectors and sinners. Certainly they would have heard his message that repentance was necessary. But he doesn't say, I'm only eating with people that have repented. His words were loud and clear, and yet so were his actions, that the grace of God is for all who would come. And yet in their self-righteousness, they despised that very grace. Well, I suppose I should speed up a little bit. We've got the grace of Jesus demonstrated. We've got the grace of Jesus despised. And now, thirdly, we've got the grace of Jesus declared in verse 17. The grace of Jesus declared in verse 17. They ask the question to the disciples, but Jesus hears it, and he just goes straight to addressing the problem. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus gives them a proverb, a, a kind of statement that makes you go, well, duh. When you're, when you're well, you don't need to go to the doctor. Only when you're sick do you need to go to the doctor. Everybody knows that. But what they didn't realize is that their own self-righteousness made them think that they did not need to go to God in order to be cleansed of their sin. They had no sin. They followed the law. They did everything right. They knew their Bibles. They had no sin that needed to be forgiven. And so when the Savior of the world came, rather than accept him, they killed him. That's the very thing that happens when one's own exertion of self-righteousness meets the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I don't need that. I'm good. And yet they had no idea that Jesus had come even for the self-righteous. Jesus makes it crystal clear what his mission was, not to go to the people that were righteous. And by that, he does not mean the people that were already biblically righteous through faith in him. He means the people that thought themselves to be righteous, which is why he continually spoke harshly to the Pharisees. He called them vipers. He called them whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, dead on the inside. They had no idea that they needed the very thing that Jesus came to offer, and yet who did know that they needed the very thing Jesus came to offer? The sinners. The sinners. And isn't that what happened to you when Jesus called you? Whether your sin was something as seemingly small as hitting a sibling, or your sin was something as great as a lifelong rebellion against God and against everyone else. I'll not get more descriptive than that. Regardless of what it was when Jesus called you, the reality is it hit you. I'm a sinner. I'm not okay with God. I'm a rebel against God. I have no right standing with God. But I see Jesus. And he compels me by the beauty of his grace to come. He is the open door to God. He is the forgiveness that I need. It's his righteousness that I can have by faith, not my own. And it's in his righteousness which I will continue to walk all the way to glory. There's something compelling about the call of the grace of Jesus Christ. It's the thing that is not compelling about man's religion. Our rules will never change the sinner. They may clean him or her up a little bit, but they'll never change the heart. It's God's grace that changes the sinner. And the reality is that the more the sinner beholds the gracious nature of God in Jesus Christ, the more the sinner is changed and the more the sinner is continually encouraged to repent. Paul speaks to the self-righteous in Romans 2, and in verse 4 he says to them, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's a hard line sometimes to figure out the role of engagement with the world and avoidance of sin. But here Jesus shows us we can and must do both. Engage the world and avoid sin. And if you have the Spirit of God inside of you, guess what? You can do it. If you find that you can't do it, then perhaps you don't have the Spirit of God inside of you yet. Perhaps what you've been trying to do is live a self-righteous life. Always doing the right thing so that God is happy with you. And when you, of course, do the wrong thing, you see God as extremely angry with you, just waiting to smite you with a bolt of lightning. My friends, be careful because that is self-righteousness. We do not establish our own righteousness. And there's not a person here this morning who is not a sinner. You could have been saved for 2,000 years. Okay, no one's been saved that long. But if I say a number that's attainable, then it becomes potentially uh, offensive. You could have been saved for what you remember as your whole life. Yet what did the Apostle Paul say at the end of his life? I'm the chief of sinners. And he wasn't speaking about that in the past tense. I was the chief of sinners. No, he says, I am the chief of sinners. So I want to ask you a very pointed question. Do you see yourself as a sinner? Not used to be a sinner are a sinner. Because if you see yourself as a sinner, that and only that is the way that you can see yourself as saved through faith in Jesus Christ. We see then that the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ consists in calling sinners to themselves, making them new, while the ministry of the Pharisees consists in keeping sinners away unless sinners can make themselves a little bit more presentable. The Pharisees reflect the us versus them mentality. Don't let them in. They might mess up the purity that we have here. And Jesus, of course, represents the us for them mentality. No one can touch what God has given me in Christ. No one can mess that up. And so because I'm confident in Jesus Christ and I'm secure in Jesus Christ, there are most definitely things I will not do. I will pursue holiness with all the zeal that God gives me. But I will also storm the gates of hell so that sinners would know there's a savior for their souls. So church, today God has set before us two vastly different approaches to life. Us versus them or us for them. The reality is, each one of us has a choice. Will I live as an us versus them type of person? 
or in the light of the great mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, will I live as an us for them type of person on a mission to snag souls from hell itself. The choice is yours. It's quite clear what the right choice is. But I ask you to analyze your life and see by your own actions which one you have been living. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, for your tender heart towards sinners. We thank you, Lord, that when you called us to yourself, you did not tell us first to clean ourselves up and get right and then come to you, but you came to us in the filth of our sin and you cleaned us up. You redeemed us, you washed us, you sanctified us, and you will glorify us one day. We pray, O oh God, that the reality of that would so, so affect us and the way that we live our lives that we would not try to live in a secret bubble where we only let the righteous in, but that while we maintain holiness and pursue righteousness, we at the very same time would follow in your footsteps so that the lost might know the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us that gift, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Call the ushers forward now for our offering this morning as we continue our worship. We give as a reflection of our gratitude to God and who, who he is and what he's done for us. This also serves as a time for us to meditate upon the word of God as the Holy Spirit has been using his word to affect your heart in whatever ways. So let me offer a word of prayer for this time and then we will go to it. Father, again, we come to you humbled by your grace in sending your son and leaving your spirit so that we would know the true gift of Jesus Christ. And we pray, O oh God, that that grace would so influence the way that we live, even in our giving that we would understand and remember that it's not the amount that you are concerned with, but it's the heart with which you are concerned. You want us to be cheerful givers. And the reality is, Lord, how could we be anything else in the light of your grace? Help us now as we, as we seek to give to you just a portion of what you have given to us. Use these gifts so that the lost might be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>